Thank you for hopping on remotely. My pleasure. <laughs> this is Natasha Jakovsky, author of the novel Portrait of a Mirror and the Substack, Quite Useless, and uh, fellow UVA graduate. Um, you are dialing in remotely. Uh, tell us where you are right now and what you are doing there. I am in a small beach town in Delaware where I am doing a DIY writing residency for the summer. I've taken three months off from my corporate job and I'm writing my second novel 12 to 14 hours a day, Monday through Thursday, about a half day <laughs> on Friday. Yeah. My, my husband and son come for the weekend and we have fun. And then Saturday, Sunday night, I, um, I generally try and put in a half day too. Although this Sunday night I saw Oppenheimer. Nice. I, that's nice that you're still giving yourself summer Fridays, even when you're in the middle of your writing residency. It's just when they arrive. And once they arrive, work is impossible. That's why. <laughs> yeah. That's... But I, I imagine like after a long week of like 12 hour days at, at the computer, it's like good to just kind of like slams laptop shut for the weekend and, and not oh, have to yeah. deal with any of that stuff or think about it. For sure. Awesome. I have, I have been compartmentalizing compartmentalization. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, it's just so awesome what you're doing. Uh, even as a man who doesn't have a kid, just has a dog. I'm like, so tremendously envious of like, you know, just kind of you taking this time to, to really sit down and like dedicate yourself to the work and like just the solitude and the silence has, has got to be really awesome, especially as like a mother of a small child. I'm not gonna I'm not going to you know beat around the bush it's it's amazing I love it um I mean I love my son too the weekends are it, I do I slam my laptop shut and I really completely put it out of my mind and very present all weekend cognizant that my son isn't spending time with me that we've missed each other like usually when he gets in we, we just like cuddle for an hour because mm. we've missed each other so much but the silence, the solitude, the no mommy, mommy, mommy. It's amazing. I can it's... think. I can. I've. I've. I'm working faster and better than I ever have in my life. It's uh, including on portrait. I'm writing like four times faster than I was on. Do portrait. you anticipate? I know you had a, like a really productive June. Do you anticipate being done with the novel by the end of August by Labor Day? It's going to be really close. <laughs> All right. But like, even if it's not there, I feel like you got like just you're, you're, you're if you're close to the end, you know, you can set aside some time in the fall or whenever and like to, to knock it out. Yeah. I mean, I'm look, put it this way. I'm going to be trying really, re it's going well enough that I'm still very keyed in on trying to have a complete first draft by August 29th when I go back to work. Oh, so that you're even going back before Labor Day then? Mm -hmm. All right, a little before, yeah. I it's a three like the program that I've done through work is a three month future leave program where you have job security and all that stuff, but they don't let you take longer than three months. Like right, I like probably the 90 would have days taken like of... four. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, you know, I I took what I could get, and um, the last time I took off nine months, and it was, and I got sixty percent of the first book done did a lot of other stuff too um but yeah so I, I i in this in this in this economy i uh and with a family i i decided um not to put it all on the the line and and do the do the uh the version with job security yeah, you got to be like a little more practical at the end of it. So how did like this idea come about? Because I know you did it for your first book, but obviously circumstances are different with this one. Like when did you first start to generate the idea of like, I'm going to kind of go away for a few months in the summer and like how like from inception to actually like booking the the place and, and getting there? How long did that take? So you mean you mean the second is your this one? Yeah, for this, this, for one, this for one, this yeah. one. So I've been thinking about it for a while. Um, I've been, I wrote the first chapter of the book that I'm working on right now about three years ago, and it's been on my mind a lot, but I really haven't worked on it in any real sense until May, this past May. And, uh, but 
I think started thinking really seriously about it in last November. I think we we booked the place in maybe January, February. Oh, so it, like well in advance. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't and then and then I had to, you know, give give a certain amount of notice to work and I think I I gave them a little bit more than I had to. Um you know, we were we were planning on renting it for the weekends anyway, so it was you know, if something had happened at work, I just would have been working from out here. Um, but uh, it all sort of went to plan. And I think I gave notice to my job in March, maybe okay, late great. February, late February, March. And obviously this is different than the residency you did for Portrait of a Mirror. What, that wasn't yeah. even so much a residency. Like that was my husband was quitting his job. We were leaving New York, we got wasted watching Downton Abbey one night <laughs> and we called uh we, we called the Viking River Cruise people because we saw an ad and we were drunk and we we're like, let's book a Viking River Cruise. And we booked it and realized the next morning that we'd booked this thing. And over like the next couple of weeks, I was like, Well, maybe we should just go for a month. Well, maybe we should just go for and it, it eventually became that you know one-way tickets <laughs> and open, just, open return date open return date and me just taking um uh you know a, a leave I, I didn't I didn't quit then either I, I it was a leave but it was a um like a personal leave which can be up to a year I had planned on taking about um four to six months off I ended up taking nine part of the thing about the um like up to year long personal leaves at my company is you don't have a guaranteed return date. You have to have like things have to fall into place. So it took me a couple months to, I was still doing client work at the time. It took me a couple months to find a project because you're the absolute last person that they, you know, want to staff at that point. But, okay. So there was a period of time where you were like ready to come back after the trip, but like you had to wait till a client yeah. needed consulting. I was still working on the book though yeah, all day, yeah. every was, day. So it wasn't, I wasn't desperate. It was like, okay, I'm ready to go back when, and it may take some time. So I'm going to go ahead and put my hat in the ring and, and all that. And, and just write every day. Actually the couple months before I went back to work were some of the most productive because we were no longer in Europe, we were in DC and I was, I was spending much more of my time writing, um, in Europe when we were on like the Viking river cruise, I was not working on the book. I mainly, I wrote the first six, seven chapters in, um, Europe, mostly in Nice and Paris where we did like month long short stays. That's awesome. It's a pretty fantastic location to write a first book in. I feel like it was, it was, it was good. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> so, I mean, this might be kind of an obvious question, but like how, like, what are like this residency compared to your portrait residency? Like what's different? What's the same? What do you think it is that like, lets you be more productive on, on this go around? Is it just the deadline? Well, no, this one was designed as a residency. The last one was right, designed right, right. as a, like, we're only young once. Let's do this before we have a kid. Like, like, let's go have some fun. We've been working our asses off in Manhattan for, you know, six, seven years. Let's, let's go have fun. And my idea of fun is apparently starting a book. My husband didn't think it was that fun in Paris. I'll tell you, he was not super thrilled for me to be inside writing all day. Right. Um, you can but, still do that, like kind of like emo, like like so like solo like trip around Paris, like going to museums on your own. He did that. He absolutely yeah. did that, and he was he was fine. But um, but this I, my first instinct actually was, let's go to Nice. Let's go to <laughs> let's go back to France with um with with our our son. Show him show him around and stuff. But um, my husband, I hate to admit that he was right, but he was. He said you are going to get nothing done if we do that. Let's do um, Delaware beaches area instead, and you can be truly alone. So um, maybe for the first time in history, um, a husband realized that a wife needed a room of her own before, <laughs> before the wife did. 
I mean, I knew I needed a room, but he like he upgraded me. He, yeah. he knew that I needed the specifics a whole house. of the room. Like, yeah, the parameters is like no, not not just the room in Europe. You gotta you gotta go like out to the beach and just kind of do your house. own thing. Whole house, yeah. And, and like so. concerns do get a little more practical as 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 you get older and you have like more like another human being to be responsible for. Because yep. it's like I feel like if you're balancing fun vacation around Europe and the kid and trying to get the book. It's, it's like, it sounds fun to do all those things at once, but yeah, just like actually locking that down is going to have to be borderline impossible. Compartmentalization. This is one, one of my, my Oppenheimer. <laughs> What's that? Was the, the oh one. yeah. Yeah. He's like the compartmentalization. compartmentalization. It's a, it's a I, policy, I definitely, yeah. that is, that has been the ticket here. Um, it is with work too. I can't, I can do writing at the same time as day job stuff. Writing and writing a novel are two very different things. Fiction is way, it's, I think it's more fun, but it's also harder, mm-hmm. I think for me, than, um, than nonfiction. Uh, I'm not super precious about other writing. I try not, I try not to be precious about novel writing, but the fact is it is precious. It's, it's fucking hard. <laughs> well, yeah, because you're creating everything from the ground up. If you're like writing an essay about something, about thoughts or something you observe, there's already something kind of grounded in it that you can work around. But like with a novel, you're like if you're writing a, a story or a, a like a reporting piece about like someone having dinner, like the chair's already there, the table's already there, the conversation's already there. You just kind of relay the information. But if you're writing fiction about it, you have to invent the table, invent the chair, invent the conversation. It's being God versus being a priest. I think it's really interesting when you say compartmentalization, because the way you talk about your day job and your writing career, I, you know, I had posted a clip talking about this idea of like consistency space versus payoff space with like people like with a job, you have to be consistent. Whereas if you're an artist or an entrepreneur, you're just hoping for one big payoff. And you had mentioned that like, I, I can't straddle both. I have to pick one or the other. Um, like what, how did you kind of come to that sort of like philosophy? Is it just like over time, like kind of being aware of like what you've done and what's, what's worked and what hasn't? Yeah. I mean, look, it's been trial and error, but I do want to be clear that it's compartmentalization specifically with regard to time and focus, not thematic compartmentalization, because I actually find that being a novelist makes me much more effective at my day job and vice versa. These are super um, sympathetic and mutually supportive activities. It's just really, really challenging to do both of them. And I I really, I think you have to throw in parenthood in Mm -hmm. there as like a a third one too. And and maybe it's that you can really do two, but not three. (laughs) Because, you know, you are, you do do two. We all, I mean, anyone who's a parent almost does too. Even if you don't have a, a job outside the home, if you work in the home, you still have, that is still a job. It, we don't think of it traditionally as a job. We should because it's way harder work than what those of us who, you know, go and sit in front of computers do, in my opinion. Um, but I feel it, like, yeah, the, managing a toddler is a lot, it feels a lot more, there's more drudgery involved sometimes than just like sending emails. It is, uh, it is very consistent that the easier a job is in general, the more prestige it holds (laughs) and really, really, really hard jobs tend not to have prestige because people want easy jobs and it's desire that, um, backs prestige. Oh, like meaning that it's like almost like it, aspirational to yeah. kind of have like a That's silly right. email job that like where you get yeah. an office and you know can wear like nice outfits and stuff and and get paid a lot of money to mm-hmm. you know use your brain for a few hours. <laughs> right, and like there's no desire to like bag groceries or like pave over a road or something like that. So like, there's no prestige. Yeah. Oh, it's so much harder. Like anytime I complain about like whatever kind of corporate, you know, email slack, 
just doing my little tasks at my laptop all day. Anytime I complain about that, I just go outside and like see the Amazon guy delivering packages in 95 degree heat. And it's like, I, I would so much rather be doing whatever thing it is that I think is annoying than, than doing that task clearly. Yeah. Um, when you left college though, like, cause you took a little bit of a, I don't want to say circuitous path to like the management world, but like when you left college, what did you see as like your, what did you want your career to be? Like, were you envisioning like working in the art world and, yeah. and writing novels? I, I was not, I, I actually didn't. I envisioned myself much more as a critic than a novelist. And um, while I majored in English and political and social thought at UVA, late in my tenure, I started really wanting to become a curator. Uh, I applied to art history PhD programs. I didn't get in anywhere because <laughs> I didn't have a degree in art history. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, so, so I, my, my kind of like, I guess silver medal was going to work in the art world first at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, then at the Metropolitan Museum. But I was on the business side and it was, Oh, boring. <laughs> I did not. I, I mean, I, I owe a lot to it. Like the Met paid for a lot of my um, MBA and, uh, you know, some of the database stuff that I did there ended up being, you know, more valuable than I thought it was going to be, as did like the management lesson and how not to manage people. <laughs> Um, There's always so examples of what it. not to do in any job that you have. And sometimes those will stick with you a little bit more. For sure. For sure. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I really did. Way, way, way more than I would have admitted at the time. Plus, it was like I did my homework and read books and like, you know, I some of my I met my best friend working at the Met, who's still my best friend. Um, none of my friends work there anymore, but I amazing, amazing people worked there. It was just hierarchically dysfunctional and right so when you you took the the job on the business side was that like kind of just an attempt to get your foot in the door and then oh you yeah kind of I was I would have taken anything to get me in the building I wanted the let's be clear I wanted the prestige yep. that the institution conveyed and you know you know when you're like first out of college particularly when you're working in you know a big metropolitan area like where you work Mm -hmm. matters so much. And I'll give you an example. Like my first job in Philadelphia took me a while to get into the museum. I worked at J crew and I made the exact same amount of money and was basically doing like, like a more difficult job than my first job at the Philadelphia yeah, museum service of art. Work face to face. My like self image though, when I was working at J crew was like, in the toilet. <laughs> and as soon as I started at the museum, it didn't matter. Like I was so positive. I was like, it, it actually took me a while to become disenchanted with it because I was just so awed by, by the place itself. Right. Um, it's like, I finally, oh, I get to work in the art world. I'm not at J crew anymore. And like, there's no material difference really in income, but just yeah. again, the prestige, the desire, you, you have a job that when someone asks you what you do, they, like you tell them, they go, Oh, how like, Oh, wow. Like that you can Ooh. see the envy a little bit in their face. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I relate to that because my first job out of college, uh, and again, we graduated in 2008. So like a very terrible economic climate to graduate into. Not I worked at bother. enterprise rent a car, renting cars <laughs> to people. You need a college degree for that job. And you want to talk about like self-esteem in the toilet. Like I'm washing cars at 6.30 in the morning in a shirt and tie. And like, I went to UVA. What the hell am I doing here? And I think the thing that really, the only thing I had going for me to kind of lift up my self-esteem was uh, like a starting stand-up comedy and being like, I have this other thing that I'm working on. This is my real career. This is my aspiration. When I tell people like what I really want, it's like, yeah, I work at Enterprise now, but I'm focusing on this thing and I want to move to New York. It's like, you find like these little ways to kind of, lift yourself up a little bit. I think it's so impressive you were able to do that and have to um, admit it's embarrassing, but 
I, I couldn't, I couldn't, and I was blinded to my mimetic illusions until I was at a big technology consulting firm and, you know, making a good salary. That's when it wasn't until then that I felt comfortable enough with myself to engage in art, which requires ego death. And I just, I couldn't, I was so, I was so self-conscious before that point about, you know, what I thought of as just like my, not just professional, but just like life failure that I hadn't gone to graduate school. I hadn't, you know, I, I had been this very, very serious student, you know, writing a thesis on Ulysses, you know, everybody. Think, I mean, oh. Yeah, I read that. Didn't understand a single thing that happened. Like, it's I, I read all the words. They went into my brain. I had a hard, very hard time. Something with soap at the beginning. Like, I don't know. Like, it was. Congrats. I, I took mean, a that's, couple that's classes on it. So yeah, I had, sure I had a lot helps. of help. <laughs> I, but I even like after I read through the first chapter, I went through like the spark notes that kind of like, like, all right, what's going on here? And even reading the spark notes, like I couldn't quite wrap my brain around it. So it was more like. um Reading Ulysses for me was more like I don't I don't know if aesthetic experience is the right word, but I just got to like take in the vibe as opposed to like I actually think that's the best on. way to read it first. In okay. in the first in the first Ulysses class that um I took, the professor had us read it twice, which I think you you have to read it twice in order to read it once because actually the first pass you want to be that aesthetic experience where you don't look at the notes where you just feel the vibe and then you need to start rereading with the Gifford with you know all the you know notes and accoutrement to start absorbing some of the um you know basically absurdly clever things that you know Joyce is Joyce is trying to do but if you're going to read it once, I think you read it the way. The all right, way. yeah, that's maybe like 10, 15 years down the line, I'll give it a second read with all, all the other stuff. But I, I I picked up the vibe the first time through. I you can like. or not, I will yeah. tell you, having read it a lot of times, I do not. I it's I think it's one of the best books ever written. But in my old age, I have grown much fonder of novels that have the complexity of Joyce while still being readable. So George Eliot, Henry James, um, Edith Wharton, I, in my old age, I tend to prefer them. When you say complexity, you just mean like thematic complexity, but like it's, it's yeah. just more easy to like take in and understand. Yeah. Well, existing on two levels in many cases where there is complexity beyond the, you know, the words as they're written, but there is also the more readable level i think the the best art functions on two levels where it can be enjoyable to maybe not an everyman but your kind of normal smart person um and then another and then and then there you know is another level with easter eggs with um you know additional kind of secrets and and things if if you want to go there and if you but if you don't you're still going to have a you know a good a good experience i hear that and i think like my favorite movie ever the matrix just because like it is that perfect action movie on on the surface level Mm -hmm. and like obviously there's second level readings third fourth like there's a lot of layers that you can you can watch that movie through and i think it's it's what's made me so like why I'm so invested every time it's on TV, like 25 years later, it's, it's crazy. I can totally see that. So you're in Philadelphia and you're working at the museum and then you make the move to the Met. Was that tied to grad school or was it kind of like I'm trading up to a more prestigious museum? It was tied to my husband's grad school. He graduated from Penn law and got a job in New York. And um, he was the breadwinner at that stage. Okay. For sure. And but like at what point did you like you you said you get disenchanted with the museum world a little bit, and yeah. then at what point do you start considering business school? And I think this might be a loaded question for you because I know you've talked about this a lot. But like, why an MBA versus an MFA? Oh, I never even considered an MFA. It wasn't I wasn't thinking about the two different things at all. Um, I went I I got my MBA part time while I worked 
at the Met. And I was already deeply disenchanted with everything that was part of the desire. But while I was there, I thought, hmm, take advantage of this program. I, I'm not sure if they still offer it. At the time, it had no commitment. So like I did, I went through the hoops as a part-time um, student and did full-time recruiting, which is how I got my first job at the company I still work for um, nine, over my, over nine years later. Um, but uh, it, it, it was, nothing was that thought out. It was, it was there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, NYU had this program that was, you know, that, that was, that was compelling in, in its ability to allow you to switch careers um, and, you know, basically at a huge discount. So it was the only program I applied to. I didn't, I didn't apply to other MBA programs. I didn't apply to MFA programs. I, I guess the, the, the only fair comparison, which a lot of other um, kind of ambitious folks at the Met did do is Columbia's um, master's in art history. Like, like I think there are a fair number of, um, of people who will, will do that. I, I didn't really consider it. If I, you know, by, by the time I was, I was there, I had interacted enough with the curatorial staff to, you know, be impressed, but also realize that I, I didn't want to be a curator either. So it's like, you know, again, and you talk about this a lot, just you have this thing that you want, you get the thing that you want. And then once you have it, it's like, I don't want this. That's right. <laughs> and you make, you make the switch. But like, so while this is all going on, you're making this transition to business school, like, like, where are your aspirations in terms of writing? I, I, I think you had told me before, like, you would always wanted to write a novel. Like, was that just kind always. of hovering as like, I sh- want to do this, but I don't feel like I can. Like, where is that in your mind at this time? Yeah, I mean, it it was always a, I think I wanted the artistic persona. <laughs> yep. The, the midnight in Paris lifestyle. Like any, and the, I liked the, I liked, I had a romantic sense of what a right, what it meant to be a writer. Uh, I think that when it became real was when I realized how much work it was going to be and that I wanted to do it anyway. And that critical moment, um, it, it actually has been the critical moment for both, both my novels in terms of, I can call the second one my novel because I'm ha- more than halfway done with it. So there we go. It's a lot. Um, yeah. The critical moment is I, I, you know, I've had so many ideas for novels in both cases. The critical moment has been, when I realized that several ideas for several novels were actually ideas for the same novel. Because a novel is big and it needs layers. Particularly, I mean, I write literary fiction, so it needs lots of layers, um, or at least you wanted to have it. Uh, and, and, you know, it was with portrait, it was, when I realized that the boarding school buildings Roman and the like um, museum satire and the um, the corporate you know the the kind of technology company satire and and consulting satire and the um, the like the, the the art art novel, the serious novel about immortality and, you know, artistic apotheosis, artistic apotheosis. Um, when I realized that all of those things were the same and had a plot to stick them to, that was, that was the, the critical moment. Cause I had, I had a story for me, the themes come way more naturally than the plot. So it's weirdly, it's like, it's the plot that I need to be able to get started. Cause as much as, um, you know, my book gets criticized for not having a plot, it does have one. It's just a old and relatively, um, relatively simple 
one. Uh, my new my new book is actually much plottier. Uh, so like when you um, we so you knew in advance you kind of wanted to write this novel about mimetic desire. I guess no, I had I did not know the words mimetic desire. But like, but that that's kind of even without knowing the words, you kind of knew that's what you wanted to write about. Yes, I knew that I wanted to with portrait frame a dichotomy between the two couples, and that it was a bit of a philosophical experiment between. And spoilers, so I guess if you haven't it's, it's read been it, out for what, two years to. at this point. Yeah, it's, it's been it's out right. for a while, but just like if you, you know, some people don't like it. I don't think it really spoils anything. I'm not big into spoil. Between, um, like a a intellectual affair and a physical affair mm-hmm. between um, actual love that goes unconsummated and lust that is consummated. Um, and between, and, and, you know, with the exploration of the narcissist myth, kind of the idea of what I call interpersonal recursion, um, where, you know, you're thinking about what the other person is thinking about what you're saying instead of what you're saying itself and formulating, you know, your response instead of listening to the other person it's all very you know solipsistic and yeah conversation is strategy essentially yes conversation is strategy and you know strategy and the strategy consulting thing is is all all looped um all looped in there but yeah i wanted to explore those the the contrary natures of these two affairs and you know what they have to say about guilt versus innocence which one is are they are they the same? Are they different? Are they mm-hmm. was one better? Is one worse? Are they like that's, what are that's the one thing that really that's one thing that really stood out to me when I first read it because again it's like the consummated relationship which is just one time one night that's it versus like an extended emotional affair and it, yeah it does invite that question of like well who's more culpable here and and what's right. worse and innocent seeming guilt versus guilty seeming innocence and that's that's you know looked at really explicitly in the you know the serial discussion right oh oh that's right the uh with at, at the brunch the brunch yeah. scene that's a great one so if i could just like sing this book's praises to the listeners and, and why they should they should pick it up i i, I think it was early on in the re- when i was reading it i read most of that book on the roof of my old building in the summer of 2021 just i would take like hour-long lunch breaks and go up there and read it i think it was the first hundred pages I texted our mutual friend Kyle Matus, and I, you know, patron of every UVA sport imaginable. That that guy goes to like softball games all the time, but like he's he's very dedicated. Uh, I texted him and I, I said, "I can tell I'm really gonna like this book because these characters are making me very mad." <laughs> and as I read, I realized, like, oh, the reason they're making me mad is because I'm seeing gross parts of myself in them reflected back at me like like all the times i've been calculating or deceitful or like overthought things or selfish you know the list narcissist narcissistic list goes on and on and on and i i think my main takeaway from the book personally and it's i think it's a very prescriptive lesson is that it doesn't matter what your job is how much money you have where you went to school how many Roman numerals are in your last name? You know, it's like, you still have to like live inside your own head with your own choices. And like, if you can't get that right, you're, you're totally fucked. And like, if I can like, you know, swing in on the chandelier to your defense here, but like anyone who's like mad about like, Oh, there's no plot or like these elitist characters. It's like, you're, you're missing the point. It's not even about any of that. It's about other stuff to me. Well, well, I, I definitely did miscalculate um, the capacity for people to see things they don't like in themselves. I really thought, and a lot of people have reacted this way, um, that people would would enjoy, would kind of get a, a sick narcissistic pleasure in seeing it's like, oh, it's me. themselves. Oh. Exactly. And, and definitely people have. And that is one big reaction to the book. I... I did not expect so many people to be so turned off by it to, to, to the point of kind of inventing other things sometimes I think to justify um, dislike where you get, you know, arguments against 
elitism and stuff. And I've written about this with like messy rich people and like the specific parameters. I think that whole debate goes back actually to, to the kind of contemporary um, zeitgeist, I'll say, of of fiction, which is craft you know, more moralizing, like mm. trauma plotty, like, uh, you know, what I, I've called it the kind of the no choice plot where, where just bad things happen to people over and over again. And, and the goal of these is like empathy and, and what we want books to do for us is to show how good we are. And I reject all of this, obviously. <laughs> I'm, you know, much more on the other side, the art for art's sake, the, you know, the aesthetic movement, which really you know, goes back to, I mean, not just Oscar Wilde and those guys in the 1890s, but even, even before, um, uh, although, you know, Oscar really made it very, very famous and had so many good lines on it, but that's where, that's where quite useless comes from. All art is quite useless. It's a, it's from the preface to the picture of Dorian Gray. I, yeah, I think you've, I've, I've read you writing about this before. Like as you call it, like, the novel is like social utility, where it's like the yeah. whole thing is just it, the, the the whole point of a novel or work of art is to is to do good in the world. Or to, like, I should have improve. said that you explained it better than me. The the dichotomy is the novel is social utility versus the novel as I see it, which is a hedonistic, pleasurable form of art and all in like pleasurable but like pleasurable i think takes on many different connotations like sometimes it's fun just to read something but sometimes it's pleasurable to like kind of get hit with an idea that you're you kind of knew but you were never able to fully articulate like that that is pleasurable to me as as opposed to reading something it's like i do feel that way and i'm like them and i'm good and they're good too i don't mean like pleasurable like makes me feel egoically good i Mm. mean pleasurable in the deeply i'll say a deeply superficial sense of beauty and and truth that Mm. you know we when we recognize truth when we see things and people you know people's conception of beauty is is subjective i don't expect everyone to you know like my novel or or any other one people can legitimately have different tastes and about what truth and beauty mean and what they are in art but um yeah, I, I don't really think that the that the social utility one. I don't buy that one. I don't. There's I, don't buy a, that. I think there's only so far it can go, and like it, it's it's it for something that's meant to affect a lot of good or positive change. It it can be very superficial. Like if every if if you already know going into the the novel what is good and it, then it's just like reflected back at you i don't know like what kind of growth or change or understanding comes from that and i i just i i guess or maybe that's what people are seeking now i don't know yeah yeah well i think that that it that uh, this is actually a line from my my new book that that i'm working oh, on but breaking uh, new, uh, or uh, an exclusive uh, an exclusive sure uh but it's a short one but um uh never mistake uh guilt for desire and I think that what the social utility versus um, kind of the art for art's sake um, schools, schools, you know, split on is that the, the social utility, you're confusing your desire, uh, you're confusing your guilt for something mm-hmm. as you're, a you're desire trying to, to your consume. Through... But that's not real desire. It's, no. it's it's different it's like it's like a negation almost like you're not trying to take something in you're like trying to get something out of you i feel like that maybe so yeah have you um have you watched the other two on hbo max are you sorry uh it's 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 the quick plot summary it's like a failed actor and a failed dancer in their 20s and they have a 13 year old brother who basically becomes justin bieber overnight and they have to like deal with the repercussions of that but event like they kind of use his fame to like lift themselves up and the the sister Brooke, the whole third season is based around her trying to do good with her platform, and like the the way it just inverts on itself, where like everything she does just comes back around in this kind of self serving manner. I feel like you might get a kick out of. I know oh, re- recommending yeah. I three seasons need of a to show. Watch this. 
Yeah. It's it, when you have the free time, if, if you, you know, again, I, I hate being that guy who gives like TV homework, but like uh, it's, it's worth thinking about if, if you have the time. I, I have the time right now. All right. Awesome. <laughs> I want to circle back around to um, kind of going into the corporate world from the art world. And, and so you, you go through NYU. I'm sorry, but oh, you sorry. just, you just said that you want to circle yeah. back. To- no, it's, it's- <laughs> It's, it's I have to, I have to like make fun of you. <laughs> please do, please do. Yeah, trash me. No, that was it. That was it. Okay, just, yeah, just, just call it alerting out. Alerting you to the fact. I know. That you I, I would to like to back. to talk again about to discuss once more. Um, just so going into when you went into the business consulting world, did you anticipate? Because I'm, I'm very interested in like, you know, this, like th- this job versus your artistic desires and how you're able to kind of get them to coexist with each other. Mm-hmm. Did you anticipate hating the job? Were you surprised when no. you liked it? How how long did it take for you to really be like, I enjoy this job? Um, uh, well, I didn't like my first project. It was just project specific, but I loved my second one. So I would say if you took, if you take away my first project immediately, if you count my first project, um, which was like, I don't know, five or six months was a long one. Um, the longest one I ever had. Um, then, then right away, then, you know, right away, because it was solving problems. It was telling stories. It was, um, you know, all the things I like doing, Mm. you know, taxonomizing, gosh, I love a good framework, you know, I can't get enough of the two by two. Did you, and did you like, it? was it readily apparent early on that like this, this can influence my writing and this can like kind of help my writing, like in terms of, again, the framework at work, but also like the financial implications of just having like a, a better paying job than working at the museum? it was immediately apparent I wasn't really trying hard to write I tried to write a few stories when I was at the Met out of boredom nothing stuck more than a couple pages although um the character of except for you know there are a few lines in the book that were written at the Met based on my experience there that take place in the you know in the back offices um but for the most part I was not really thinking yet about writing. I was having so much fun. It was, I was in my twenties. I suddenly had, you know, a good job. I was traveling all over the place. I was traveling Monday through Thursday. It was really intense, but then, you know, the old consulting pre-pandemic consulting lifestyle was just like its own thing. You know, you work really, really hard Monday through Thursday, but then the weekends tend to be, um, you know, pretty chill. So I was having fun on the weekends and it wasn't really until I, um, was on the cusp of turning 30 that I was like, I haven't, I haven't written a book yet. (laughs) (laughs) By 30. No. Like, yeah, just it, again, the, I'm, I just turned 37. So it's like the older you get, like the less, I don't know, the, the, like, being precious about 30 almost seems like kind of silly at this point, but like, yeah, my my wife just turned 30 and her, all her friends are turning 30. So they're like, they're freaking out about it. And I'm like the jaded cop in the corner. And so you guys don't even know what you're talking about. I like, to be honest though, it was kind of useful for me. Like I really did. I needed the kick in the pants artistically. And you know, that first flash of my mortality, if that's what it was going to take to put out my first book. I guess it was worth it. <laughs> and that was around the time that like you realized that all these different stories could kind of coalesce together. It seems like it That's all just kind of came together. also when I was kind of started th- like working on it with any, I mean, it, it's not a coincidence that spending time thinking about it, spending time working through it. Like I spent a year of just finding the voice for portrait. I don't think anything I wrote in my 30th year and I wrote, I actually wrote many words toward a book and lots of, lots of elaborate um, visual frameworks uh, around the, you know, the, the thematics. But I don't think any of that actually made it into the book. I think that's what kind of scares people off sometimes is just this idea of like how much work you have to do for something 
and how much you're like even with comedy like how many jokes you're gonna write that like you just are never going to like really make it anywhere and like you kind of like if you know that going in it can seem almost daunting it's like what's the point of doing all of this work if it's going to end up in in the trash bin it's like well on the other side of that there is something that'll that'll come to light from the work isn't meaningless just because you don't just because you delete it you know well, okay i have a question for you about this mm -hmm. though because um i have a question for you uh because you know you have to fall in love with the process mm -hmm. my husband is telling me that all the time and he's right and to be honest this the my first writing my first book was kind of torturous this one has just been like pure fun it's been some of the most fun i have ever had in my life i have fully fully fallen in love with the process of writing this one but you have you're you're doing this whole like i have to make it by yeah x date but like but like isn't how how is that working for basically oh not great i mean like but here's the thing so with and i think comedy is very particular in that it's not really just about like like actually getting on stage and telling the jokes is such a small part of it and even like the writing of the jokes is such a small part of it um there's a lot of like physical in-person stuff um like when you don't have any shows in the calendar you got to go to terrible open mics you got to go hang out at, at at shows and like in attempts like network and show face and and get booked and like all of these kind of things and now even especially in is in that fun is that no fun? that's that's never been fun for me and it, it's always been something i've done just because i've had to do it and it's been part of like the the process but not like the artistic process it's part of the career building process and now in the modern years too there's also this whole other added workload of creating online content whether it's cutting up stand-up clips podcast clips writing and producing sketches doing all of this stuff um, there's just so much that you have to do to do comedy. That's not comedy. And that has really started to weigh on me and like the amount of time and effort and energy I've had to put in and like the little that I've gotten back, I, I've like really kind of had to evaluate, like, again, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So like, for me, the real goal was always just to like have a much fuller calendar at least like being able to like do the fun things a lot more. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't really um, manifested itself. I have enjoyed doing the podcast and some of the technical stuff of editing, but it, it's never really filled me up the way that like doing a great show in a big room does. And, and for me, that stuff is kind of few and far between these days. Uh, would I, I'm just curious because a lot of um, what's been helpful for me is figuring out which parts I actually like that mm -hmm. it is, you know, novel that I like novel writing. And, you know, the newsletter is, to be honest, it's mainly for me when I'm stuck on something or working through something, but you know, people seem to find it um, interesting enough and I'm happy to put it out there. It gives it like just a little bit of, um, you know, urgency to it versus just, you know, not doing uh, you know, versus just, putting it in a drawer um mm -hmm. but trying to really f focus my efforts on those the parts that I like and get away from things that I don't like so for instance I um you know I'll occasionally publish something in a traditional outlet um but usually only if my agent or an editor that I already know um like takes it i have no interest in like submitting most things and that's that's kind of the problem with comedy right now at least for me is is the things i don't like are like practically mandatory to get to the things you do like so imagine if like you had to publish in a journal to like write on your Substack or start your novel you know because like it's, it's just the 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 amount of time and energy I've had to like scratch and claw to get decent stage time. It's just, um, it's not like, it's not balanced and it's not even, and it's like really throwing me off personally. And like, it, as my wife and I plan to start a family like that, I, I'm not, I don't want to be the guy who like has a, a small kid and like is worried about like, Oh, am I going to get booked at this bar show? I, I kind of need to remove this expectation or this, like the sense of, of lack. One last thing I'll say is about it is that like um, the things I have been enjoying, like I've been, changing up my writing process recently where like before I would like, I'd sit down and be like, I'm going to write an hour of jokes. And now it's like, I'm just going to sit down and type at my laptop for an hour and like see what comes out. And I've really enjoyed that. A lot of times it's like, here's what I'm going to do today. Here's how I feel about this. And like every now and then I'll like 
touch on a topic I want to write a joke about and get a couple lines out of it. So like, I'm enjoying that part of it and that feels good, but like, I don't need to, um, like to me, like it, I, that I've said this before and it's kind of pretentious, but like to me, stand up's not like uh, something I could do as a hobby. It's like kind of like a lifestyle. Like it has to be like kind of all consume, not all consuming, but it's just, it's very involved. And uh, this is my long winded way of saying like the effort I've, and time I've had to put into it hasn't really paid back. And I don't know if I want to keep making that deal anymore. Okay. So that that's helpful because you're thinking about stand up specifically. Cause I was, th- I was, my first question was going to be, have you considered trying a stub stack? Like, yeah, no, that's, that's, I'm already like kind of planning. Cause again, it's August. I can kind of see which way the wind is blowing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but less like there could be some, I've, I have like a few things I'm trying to like get off the ground and like, maybe some miracle happens over the next few months. And if like if someone took me on the road, whatever, but I'm already kind of planning for life after comedy. And I know it's going to look like a lot of writing and that's, mm-hmm. that can be just personal essays, uh, screenplays and pilots, like maybe some fiction stuff. Although I've tried to write fiction in the past and it doesn't come naturally to me. I know it's something I'll have to work on, but I'm, I'm never going to stop writing. And I have this kind of like vision for my life post comedy where I kind of like wake up early and do an hour of writing, whether that's like intentionally on a project or just free writing journaling. So it's never going to stop. And I think I can kind of direct my energies into places that are useful and fruitful just for me personally and do what you do kind of separate the art from this, like decouple it from this desire, this expectation to kind of make a living off of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've found your last Substack to be deeply helpful. Um, or I guess it was the one before that, just about how like, you know, jobs next, like, like art adjacent jobs are never fulfilling, nor are they materially profitable. It's better just to find something you can tolerate that pays well. And then you carve aside time for yourself to do what you love. Although I will say I got an interesting comment to that around film and okay. someone saying like, okay, that's great for you as a writer, but you know, for me in film, like if you ever really want to do something in film, you have to get an adjacent job because mm-hmm. that's the only way. And and that makes sense to me. So I just want to caveat that, you know, and the whole post, I think I wrote very specifically that you know, I'm not intending things as advice. I'm, I'm never really intending things as advice, but ideas for consideration. Right? Yeah. And, and this one, you know, with the film, the film thing, I think is a great example of where different path works better because and you think about it because of the mediums, like when you're writing a novel, yes, publishing a novel is absolutely a team sport, but like writing the first draft I need you, you, you know, it's, it's helpful sometimes to ask people questions. Our friend Kyle Matus has been my number one source thus far for, um, for the new book. Um, but, but it, it's, it's pretty solitary mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you can, you know, you can kind of choose your schedule around it in a way that like, if you wanted to be a director, you'd also probably need to like, have the same break as the actors and you know it's just it's just requires so much so many more people and so much more coordination so i think that the medium really really impacts the right path there for you know for writing with the kind of writing that i'm interested in doing that is not like not journalism because i i also think that like if you want to be a journalist getting a journalism adjacent job is probably much, much um, better uh, than, than doing something totally different. You have, you have yeah. to have some kind of proximity to like the, the industry, you know, to, to, right. to get it out there. Otherwise you're just writing into your, your laptop, you know, with, with no, no readers. That's right. That's right. And, and, um, but you know, for, for novels, for, I would say probably for stand up comedy because that is very you centric too the, right? the writing of the jokes is very you centric but the actually getting on stage and being able to like being able to get booked there's still a lot of gatekeepers and people that have to like invite you onto their stage so like the writing is very solitary and like yeah open mics are technically solitary because you just go and sign up and do it but like to actually get the fulfilling aspects of it to tell you know a, a joke a great joke that works in front of a big crowded room that like the, the real stuff that gets you going that requires a lot of people to to bring you in it's like kind of 
not solo in the same way that film it's like you have to know the technical side of stuff to to make it work i mean that's the same with publishing though to mm -hmm. get to like publish a book it requires a lot of people mm -hmm. i mean the the team my team at abrams was like six people seven and then you know i have two agents and um you know a co-writer for you know just working working with me on the the uh um the screenplay like it it takes a i i, I think that there's that everywhere but yeah. i guess my question is and maybe this is different from may, I, I, you tell me whether or not it's different but when i say falling in love with the process and um like that the thing kind of has to be worth doing in and of itself i don't mean no one seeing it but mm -hmm. I would still be taking off this summer if I knew that my agent would never sell the book, that the only people who would read it would be her and my husband and Kyle Matus. <laughs> right. If like, you would send me a copy, I would read it too. Uh, well, that, right. And, and, and look, I, I, I have enough um, followers on Substack to know that there's, you know, people who, who would want to read it. Like, you know, Worst case scenario, maybe I would set up a paid Substack or something, you know, for it and publish it serially. I don't know. Um, I guess my point is that even if, even if, and I, while I am absolutely trying to publish my second book, and you know, the first one sold sold pretty well, and 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 you know, hopefully be able to, like, I would still do this even mm -hmm. if I knew it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I think it, it it might just be different with stand up because you have to have the crowd there, like it, like mm -hmm. the the audience and like the size of the audience and the type of the audience and the environment. Like you know, doing a show whenever I do a show at like New York Comedy Club on like a Friday night, whenever I'm lucky enough to do that, and there's like 150 people there, it's very different than doing a show in like a Brooklyn bar where there's 10 people there. Yeah, and so like you know, the the jokes are the same, the the process is like technically the same. But it's just the the environment, the reception, like it, that that really changes the experience and and kind of how I feel about it. Maybe that's a failing failing on my part. Maybe I'm like too invested in like you know outcomes out of my control. But it's just like I I, I just I can kind of rationalize it or intellectualize it all I want. I just know that right now I'm not really feeling like nourished by stand up, and it's oh. like kind of taking more out of me. But I do know I have a work ethic and an ability to find something that will kind of fill me up if like stand up doesn't uh if i end up kind of leaving it behind you know because again i could never do it as a hobby it would have to be like a very central part of my life god that makes that makes total sense awesome all right good i'm always like worried if i'm like talking myself in, in circles here i know we're buttoned up against time but real quick i want to talk about something that that you wrote about recently this idea of fame's inflection point mm -hmm. and the the riddle of the artists and i i i kind of when I watched Oppenheimer, I thought of this because, well, first of all, explain what, what fame's inflection point, what you, you define that as. Yeah. Um, at the highest level, and I've been thinking about it more nuancedly after getting some responses, <laughs> um, but it's the shift that happens when a famous person goes from, from, their fame being primarily focused on, on what they create, on the artifacts of their creation versus it, toward the who, toward, toward themselves as the artist and the, you know, their being their self. So I think an example is probably really helpful. And this is the example that I, you know, gave in, in the essay. If you think about like the, Fame's inflection point, it's distinct from absolute fame. So think of Gorilla Glue Girl. Mm -hmm. Like Gorilla Glue Girl was absolutely famous, um, but it had nothing to do with her. Like if a different woman, if I had put Gorilla Glue in my hair and gotten on TikTok, like maybe, 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 or maybe not the same thing would have happened to me, I think probably, but like, like, the Gorilla Glue girl isn't is famous for what she did, not for who she is. And if it was, if it had been a different person to do it, it really are the 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 our, our gaze would have shifted to. Mm -hmm. 
Um, compare that to William Shakespeare, who has long since passed flames, flame, fame's inflection point. And, um, you know, if, if even the tiniest scrap of new information about Shakespeare, you know, came up about biographical stuff or, um, or like a new sonnet, like even if it sucked, it would be really important because um, Shakespeare having passed fame's inflection point has taken on this magic artist persona. And magic is like the defining feature. It's closely related to the idea of, of genius. So I was thinking about that after reading that and then seeing Oppenheimer this weekend, I was thinking about it, Oppenheimer, both in terms of Christopher Nolan, because you see in the marketing for Oppenheimer, it doesn't say Cillian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, whoever it says, a Christopher Nolan film. Um, well, their so names like, are across the top, but yeah. Right. But like, I think that's like the, the big, it's like, oh, it's a Christopher Nolan movie. But I guess like, it's still about the movie itself. But like he, as a director, like, I don't really know anything about his personal life. I don't think anyone else does really. It's not like really out there. But like the fact that he directed the movie makes it noteworthy in and of yeah. itself. Like, would you call that an example or kind of on the spectrum? Yeah, no, I think, I think Christopher Nolan has probably passed fame's inflection point. And you, you can see it in when, like the, when the actors talk about him, like, like I saw some anecdote about um, Matt Damon having negotiated with his wife that he was going on break unless Christopher Nolan called. That sort of power tells you that he's passed fame's inflection point. That it doesn't even matter what Christopher Nolan makes a movie about. Matt Damon's going to want to be in it. Yeah, he's going to tell his wife, like, I got to get out of here and go hang out with Christopher Nolan. Right. And then also, but in terms of Oppenheimer, the man, because, mm -hmm. and I, the movie kind of highlighted this, I feel like, just his trouble persona. It's almost like the fact that he, and I don't know if this ties into the genius thing or like the troubled artist thing, but just the fact that he was like an arrogant womanizer, it's, it almost kind of sets it up in this way or people interpret it this way as like, it's almost like that made him a better physicist somehow. Like, like I don't know like why people get so obsessed with like, these kind of negative qualities of, of great artists. I don't know if it's like, because like they think that like somehow like their own negative qualities are masking like a latent genius or relate. Like, I don't, I don't know. You why. have, you just have to read Claire Dieter's book monsters. Like that is the okay. kind of the central question of the book. It just came out in, I think April it's super good. It's one of the books that, um, you know, I, I look at in, that piece and the question you're asking is like it it is a nuanced layered like very very um it's just it's complex and i can't boil it down to a you know a, a sound a sound bite um <laughs> yeah that the myth of the tortured artist might be like my least favorite thing just like it, i think it especially with comedians comedians really buy the hype around like other comedians who have, you know, like, oh, Richard Pryor had all these problems. It's almost like they try and backdoor their way into greatness. So it's like, oh, Richard Pryor was was addicted to drugs. And then I, if I'm addicted to drugs, I can be like Richard Pryor. Patrice O'Neill was an asshole. If I'm an asshole, I'm like Patrice O'Neill. Kurt Cobain was depressed. If I'm depressed, I'm like Kurt Cobain. It's just that well, stuff really, it, 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 yeah. Well, I will say, I will say to, to that that myth is extremely, extremely old. And even mm -hmm. beyond Dieter's, um, you know, expl explanations, for this, um, or I can't remember, she she may mention something similar, though she doesn't um, quote Chris and Curse um, directly. Uh, but it goes back to the earliest artist anecdotes um, in Greece when you know artists were were first putting their name on things because it, it has to do with ego, right, mm -hmm. and the identity and, and, and the like, artist persona. It? But that, but that that like the divine status, the genius status of the cult status of the poet came out of actual religiosity and cults and, um, you know, the tendency for profits to the other, the Oppenheimer thread I'm most interested in, the tendency for profits to uh, uh, channel divine madness. Mm -hmm. The like Bacchanalian almost intoxication type quality and the link, the historical, 
the historic historic mythic mythical connection between um intoxication and madness and great art is like i mean it goes back to thousands and thousands of years as long as we've had artists it's it's it makes me think of like uh, when I saw like Amadeus for the first time and like Goodwill Hunting. It's almost like you're watching like a superhero movie. It's like you're you're seeing Amadeus like play all those notes in front of Salieri or Matt Damon like f- tell that guy to fuck off at the bar. It's almost like you're watching Superman fly. It's oh wow, I want to do that. You know, it's 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 so yeah. It's it, you're right. It can't be explained in something very simple, but it, it's clearly something that resonates with people very deeply. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And would you say Amadeus, that, great movie, by the way. One of my absolute, absolute favorites It's ever. It's so fun to watch every to, time. To connect to Oppenheimer, you know, I read another, I like go, spent a lot of time Googling because I liked the movie so much. But um, apparently uh, Christopher Nolan pitched uh, Robert Downey Jr. on the part of Strauss by telling him, you're used to playing Mozart. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need you to be Salieri. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the patron saint of mediocrity. Let him hear it. Um, would you say, and I, I think you've hinted to this, that your next novel deals with the idea of fame's inflection point and the, the myth yes. of genius? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Fame prof- and, and prophecy like and madness and um, and novelistic truth. Yeah, for sure. Okay, awesome. All, well, all of the above. That's why, you know, I I wrote that. I wrote the fame's inflection point um piece because uh I was I had just finished the first half of the book part one of the the novel and I was having a little trouble getting into part two and the like the height of fame part of part of the book and I um I needed to work through some things which is why I why I put that together and do you, do you feel like a little bit more clarity going into part two? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I'm past it now. I'm, I'm already on the second chapter of part two. So yeah. awesome. Glad to hear it. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for, for dialing in. Really appreciate the conversation. Um, where can people find you? Tell us about the book, the sub stack, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I have a website, natashashukovsky.com and me, but mainly the, the place that I go to is, is the sub sub stack. It's just zhukovsky.com substack.com it's and how are them. you finding notes on substack their version of twitter it's better than anything else um too much still too much like meta follower conversation like look at my hockey stick of growth <laughs> look how many people are looking at me and i just i've written about this too i'm i'm less interested in the line than I am the exhibition itself. And like once a line and a like virality becomes its own phenomenon and like outpaces the thing. I mean, you're just get it. You're in the realm of, you know, mimetic hoopla. Right. Yeah. The, the line, yeah, you're right. the line becomes more important than the exhibition. Yeah. It's like, who cares about the line really? If the exhibition sucks. Right. All right. Well, I can tell you Natasha's exhibition does not suck. So no matter how long the line gets, buy into the hype. Um, Thank you so much for joining. We'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. All right. Oh, well, like and subscribe. Speaking of getting the hockey stick to go up, hate it every time I say it. All right. See you later. Bye.